and another from someone inside the Capitol. We are all helpless. Dozens of texts, including from Trump administration officials, urged immediate action by the president. Quote, POTUS has to come out firmly and tell the protesters to dissipate. Someone is going to get killed. In another, Mark, he needs to stop this now. A third, in all caps, tell them to go home. A fourth, and I quote, POTUS needs to calm this shit down. Indeed, according to the records, multiple Fox News hosts knew the president needed to act immediately. They texted Mr. Meadows, and he has turned over those texts. Quote, Mark, the president needs to tell people in the Capitol to go home. This is hurting all of us. He is destroying his legacy, Laura Ingram wrote. Please get him on TV, destroying everything you have accomplished, Brian Kilmeade texted. Quote, can he make a statement, ask people to leave the Capitol, Sean Hannity urged. As the violence continued, one of the president's sons texted Mr. Meadows, quote, He's got to condemn this shit ASAP. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough, Donald Trump Jr. texted. Meadows responded, quote, I'm pushing it hard. I agree. Still, President Trump did not immediately act. Donald Trump Jr. texted again and again, urging action by the president, quote, we need an Oval Office address. He has to lead now. It has gone too far and gotten out of hand. End quote. Episode 20, The Plot Thickens. Welcome to Capitol Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to the attack on the Capitol on January 6, 2021 in Washington, D.C. I'm Scott Kuhn. In the introduction, we heard Representative Cheney reading text messages that Mark Meadows had turned over to the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack in testimony during a hearing to determine whether Meadows should be found in contempt of Congress and referred to the Justice Department, a referral that was approved by the full House on Tuesday, December 14th. The last episode was mainly devoted to the December 1st 2021 memorandum authored by Colonel Earl Matthews, which credibly claimed that General Michael Flynn, General Walter Piott, and the Department of Defense Office of the Inspector General had all made substantial misstatements of fact in recounting the events surrounding the delay in the order to deploy the D.C. National Guard on January 6th. Much of the issue at stake in the Matthews memo involved a report that we hadn't seen at that point, purportedly authored by General Piott and perhaps his staff, that Matthews, Colonel Matthews, the uh, judge, I'm sorry, the judge advocate uh, staff officer um, who, you know, was working with uh, Major General Walker uh, at the armory at the time, um, that he basically says, you know, 
that this this army report uh, actually served as the basis for the much more substantial but equally incorrect DOD OIG report. And again, this is significant because that's not how OIG investigations are supposed to work. He's alleging that it was basically like a, I don't know, a, a scrap turkey test, a, a fake kind of, uh, you know, investigation with a predetermined outcome and that Piot's work, Piot's army report served as, the, you know, basically a, a foregone conclusion that all the facts contained in the army report were going to um, predetermine the conclusions of the DOD OIG report. And uh, again, supported mainly by allegations from uh, unnamed anonymous army sources uh, that Walker and uh, Colonel Matthews uh, take some pains to identify uh, in the, the memorandum that they wrote in response to the DOD OIG report. All right. Now, after I published that episode, I was a bit flummoxed to discover that the Army report had actually been released while I was recording the episode. So I resolved at that point to do a quick episode uh, and call it something like episode 19A on the subject of the Army report itself. And then a whole series of new developments happened in quick succession. And so I knew it would be impossible to simply address just the Army report but I still wanted to get an episode out as quickly as I could. So I'd like to apologize in advance if this episode is as tightly scripted as usual, but I'd like to err on the side of completeness at this time, rather than just really you know, developing a, a unifying theme. Um, I'm really just going to report on the, the events uh, that have occurred over the course of the last week because uh, they've been coming fast and furious. Uh, nonetheless, I do have a title, uh, The Plot Thickens, so it's a bit like episode 17, Hurry Up and Wait. Uh, there have been these, uh, you know, periods, as we've seen, uh, ever since the, the, on, the, the attack on January 6th, where there have been little new developments, right? You know, an arrest, you're there, but, uh, you know, the committee meeting, perhaps, but nothing getting out. Um, so, you know, there, there have been slow periods. And then there have been periods there where there in there have been these rapid-fire developments. And so, you know, on a kind of a cycle like that. And right now, I, it seems we are in one of those rapid-fire periods. Um, I personally believe that there's more to it than that. I believe at this point the overarching narrative is being driven by progress in the House Select Committee and also at the FBI, and at the Department of Justice, and they're moving in parallel tracks. You may remember way back in episode one, where I laid out a speculative timetable, uh, wherein I suggested that if I was a cynical person, or, or perhaps a smart person, I would plan the investigative and judicial processes in such a way that there would be maximal electoral damage to Trumpist candidates in the 2022 midterms. Remember, if Trumpism is a threat to electoral democracy, then one might want to uh, have there be political consequences to all of this Sturm und Drang in uh, these you know, various hearings and court proceedings. And so all that would, would result in some kind of culmination or crescendo uh, in the summer 
of 2022. Now, I realize confirmation bias exists, right? Uh, but I kind of think that that is what's happening, whether it's part of some grand plan or just the natural workings of the process, you know, it's hard to say. But I believe as a political scientist that people do act strategically in the political and judicial systems. So, you know, and we've seen this incrementally in the, um, the cases that the Department of Justice has put forward, right? All this video evidence and other evidence that's been gathered in these lower level cases being used in more serious cases. And also the investigation and committee moving ever forward, um, resulting, you know, in, in kind of like a, these series of concentric circles, right? Where you've got, you know, the lowest level paraders on the outside. And we're finally nudging closer and closer toward the central players. And so it's my belief that what we're seeing right now is a, a new phase in the process. So normally I'd take some time to outline all the developments that we'll be examining, but they've just been coming up so fast that I'd just rather get this out as quickly as I can rather than do that. Now, this is usually a bi-weekly podcast, but um, I'm just you know, trying to get this uh, out as quickly as I can because the, the plot is thickening at a rather rapid pace. Now, you can speculate as to why. Maybe it's because Congress and the judicial system want to clear their desks, uh, you know, go home for the holidays. Um, you know, maybe all the uh, AUSAs and FBI agents have scheduled annual leave, right? Senior agents and attorneys are probably in the eight-hour-per-pay-period uh, category, and so that means they get a you know a day off every two weeks, and so they've been saving their time uh, and want to get a nice break around the holidays, and so everybody's clearing their desks. Who knows? But I, I think too that there's there's more to it than that. But before we move on to that subject, let's take a moment to look at where we stand with regard to the aggregate number of arrests, plea deals, sentences, and all the rest. Here are the updated numbers according to Sedition Tracker. So far, there have been 705 individuals charged, an increase of nine since last episode. Um, I realize that there's discrepancy in uh, different people's numbers, right? It depends upon who you charge, uh, you know, who you include in your data set. Um, you know, I, for one, have always thought that you should include people from January 5th. You know, clearly it's all the same, part of the same event, even though it wasn't on that day. Um, I mean, and you have people like Troy Smocks, you know, um, who, you know, somehow are included, but, uh, you know, is basically included for electronic communications that were conducted in Texas. Um, you know, nonetheless, there are some people in DC who are excluded, whatever. The main thing is that I'm using a set of numbers that are at least going to be consistent. That's why I stuck with one source on that. And everybody agrees at this point, I think, that it has been over 700 individuals charged. So that's the take home at this point. 328 indicted, which is an increase of two since the last episode. Three deceased, no change there. One dismissal, no change there. 252 convictions, an increase of three since our last episode, all of which have been parading convictions, and 45 sentencings, an increase of four since the last episode. Again, all parading defendants. So not that much going on sentencing and convictions over the course of the last week. Um, but some of the arrests are actually notable. 
And I'm not sure if it's a trend that it's going to continue, but the proportion of defendants charged with serious offenses in the last week are quite high uh, in comparison to like some of the earlier weeks, you know, where we've seen nothing but misdemeanor people. So yeah, they're, you know, they're certainly not running out of people and the evidence suggests that there's probably a lot more uh, assault defendants who remain at large and who may be charged uh, hopefully soon, right? One notable recent AFO arrest, assault on a federal officer arrest, was of 68-year-old Avery McCracken of Telluride, Colorado, whose hashtag is Covered Dragon, one word. Uh, McCracken has a long criminal history, having been charged in 27 cases in his home of San Miguel County, Colorado, including charges of drug possession, harassment, and restricted driving. Again, that's a lot. Dating back to 1995, this man has 27 different criminal charges. According to local law enforcement, McCracken's been living out of his car off and on for several years. And according to his statement of facts in the case, he traveled by air from Colorado on January 4th and returned to D.C., uh, returned from D.C., rather, on January 9th. Now, interestingly, if you follow the same people I follow on Twitter, uh, you'll find that there is a picture of what appears to be Avery McCracken with Lauren Boebert. Standing right next to each other, he's wearing a red shirt and a MAGA hat, and is holding up a $100 bill in his hand. It's apparently been taken from uh, his Facebook page. And he's smiling, holding up this $100 bill. Um, and it just so happens that Boebert represents the 3rd Congressional District of Colorado, and that Telluride is in the 3rd Congressional District of Colorado. So, interesting coincidence there. Now, this is not the first person who is indigent, or at least very poor, who somehow made it to D.C. Uh, from a very distant part of the country and, you know, raises questions about who funded their air travel and hotel expenses, right? So, you know, you've got McCracken staying over on the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and 9th, you know, uh, five days, you know, well, depending you know, four or five days uh, in a hotel in D.C. Uh, and airfare. So, you know, um, I don't know what he's been doing. You know, maybe maybe he came to a, a little bit of money. But, uh, you know, it, 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 there is a question about whether or not these people actually traveled on their own or on their own dime and uh, went to go fight for Trump on January 6th. Now, McCracken's not alone, right? So I don't think it's a coincidence here that two other arrests this week also raise questions about this very issue. And these are Donald Hazard, 43, and Lucas Denny, both of the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area. Hazard uh, was hashtagged as tackling dummy, and Denny was assigned the hashtag pull tosser. Um, I'm not going to go too deep into the, the uh, statement of facts. Uh, both of them are charged with assault on a federal officer, Several other serious counts. Both of them have a conspiracy charge uh, for reasons we'll see in a moment. Um, and Denny faces eight counts in total, and Hazard faces 11. 
So, you know, these are the kinds of people who wind up uh, being subject to, to pretrial detention. They've got violent offenses and they've got multiple charges and they're members of a paramilitary gang. They've got their own group that seems a little like the Proud Boys, but I don't know why they didn't just join the Proud Boys, but they called the Patriot Boys uh, in North Dallas. I've never heard of them. Uh, you know, probably I'm sure others have. Um, but, you know, so yeah, Proud Boys, but for, for neo-Confederates. Um, at any rate, so Hazard and, and Denny, apparently avid Facebook users, um, identified early on, and they're, they're both the subject of tips received by the FBI, uh, one of them on January 6th and one of them on January 7th. So identified right away, and the uh, FBI soon gets um, search warrants for, for Facebook to get their information from their Facebook accounts, which it appears they use to, to organize their participation in the insurrection. In one of the uh, on one of the pages in the statement of facts, there's a picture of Hazard, uh, who has a Nazi-style helmet, emblazoned with the Confederate battle flag, and new gloves with like these plastic knuckles uh, appear to be you know specifically for participating in the insurrection. And he posted a picture of himself wearing them, uh, sent to another user on January third. Similarly, Denny did the same thing wherein he uh, sent a picture of the attire he would be wearing with this uh, gator-like thing that looked like it has the Joker on it, uh, so that another user, who we don't know, uh, presumably hasn't been arrested if they went to D.C., uh, you know, uh, with these two, quote, patriot boys. Um, but, yeah, just obviously dumb, right? I mean, I don't know, you know, I mean, this is a bit of a digression, but if you're going to commit a criminal act, uh, don't post pictures or send pictures on social media or social media messaging unless it's encrypted um, that has pictures of you in the attire saying, I'm planning on per perpetrating a criminal act. This is what I'm going to be wearing. And then show up to commit your criminal act wearing that garb, allegedly. Uh, although, again, the pictures match up. They, they posted pictures of themselves wearing these outfits you know, a lot of this, uh, you know, cosplay or LARP, I don't know. Um, but, you know, uh, these, these little fascist paramilitary gangs like to play dress up and then, you know, put pictures of themselves online and then show up in the same outfits. That's dumb, right? That is really not a smart thing to do. But, you know, these are people who are in what we call the left-hand tail of the distribution. Now, the, the statement of facts is rather long, lots of interesting details. Um, but I'm just going to focus on this one part. Quote, on or about December 26th, day after Christmas, oh, lovely Boxing Day. On or about December 26th, 2020, Denny messaged Hazard that, quote, DC is definitely on. Have plenty of money now. I just got a $1,000 donation from one person for the trip. I have more donations coming in, too, which he spelled with two O's, sick, um, Denny also asked Hazard if he knew, quote, any other guys that can go that's sick like us and will fight. We could use them and it will be paid for, end quote. So here we have AFO defendants communicating about donations that they've received to go to D.C. 
to take part in the in this direction. And they claim to um, have stayed in the same hotel with other paramilitary gang members. They talk about, you know, wanting to stay with the Proud Boys. I, these guys are like, I don't know if they're like wannabes or what, but, you know, they're, they're so excited that they're like fanboys of the Proud Boys. They've got their own little uh, chapter of, you know, uh, proud, you know, I don't know if it's like the, the junior league or junior uh, chamber of commerce uh, of the Proud Boys, um, you know, but they're, they're excited to hook up with them. And uh, they say that they're, they're going to stay at the same hotel with other paramilitary gang members. Uh, quote, the same place everyone else is getting in. The Proud Boys crew and other militias until it gets full. End quote. So that's really, that's really good. That's just a beautiful, beautiful gift to the FBI right there. Uh, it, the hotel is identified as Hotel One in the charging documents. Um, not Motel 6, Hotel 1. But, you know, if I'm the FBI, do I have their guest list for the week of the insurrection? I probably do. And so everybody on that list is probably going to get at least a door knock, uh, or they're going to compare the people to photos of known defendants, or, sorry, unidentified bolo photos. So... Just really interesting. And I, I mean, I'm going to end this, you know, on a hopeful note, this part at least, about the um, the arrests and the sentencings uh, catching up a little bit. Uh, so, you know, I'm trying to remember, it was five or six, but um, the majority of the people who were arrested over the course of the past week uh, were arrested for assault on a federal officer. And many of them appear to have been identified quite some time ago, that this is a pattern. Um, and could it be that, you know, there are people who are acting strategically and waiting for some reason? Uh, could it be that we're ready to enter a new phase of this investigation where they are directly looking at the money links between the individual insurrectionists who have been charged um, with, you know, assault or conspiracy or obstruction, 1512, um, you know, it looks like, I mean, this is a sign that they've been following the money trail. They've been doing it some time. And these are guys who are facing very serious charges. And, you know, like I said, these guys are a lot like other defendants who haven't been uh, released. So I, I do wonder what it would take for them to reveal who paid for them to go to D.C. to fight end electoral democracy in the United States. I mean, they'll have time to think about that in the D.C. jail, um, but it's another avenue of vulnerability uh, for the more central planners of the insurrection. And it's worth noting, by the way, I think, you know, this Boebert picture uh, of her standing with McCracken, it might be interesting to take a look at uh, what congressional districts these defendants come from, right? So, you know, and they're from all over the country. And, you know, it's not just red areas. It's also blue areas. Um, but nonetheless, you know, be interesting to see. Like, I did take a look at Shane Deaton Jenkins. Um, just because, again, he's another indigent defendant. I did a whole episode on him. Uh, and 
I don't know that he's indigent. I mean, he may be working, but again, he's in a half, halfway house. He was in a halfway house. He's incarcerated now. Uh, and, you know, long criminal history. In a halfway house, five kids. Um, sort of self-radicalized. But also from Texas, right? Like the Patriot Boys. And uh, he's actually in Dan Crenshaw's district. The second congressional district of Texas. So... You know, I don't know how people are spending their campaign money, um, but, you know, it's, it's an interesting link to try to relate these uh, individual people, especially the ones who, who may have no visible means of support uh, or who may not be able to swing, you know, uh, enough money to, for a plane ticket, a round trip plane ticket and, uh, you know, several days uh, stay in D.C., right? So, and it's also kind of interesting, by the way, that um, both McCracken uh, and Hazard and Denny wind up staying for, what, four days, right? Almost as if they anticipated, perhaps, having to stay over in D.C. a bit longer. Um, I don't know if that was just for vacation purposes, or maybe this might relate to some sort of longer-term scheme to occupy the Capitol, let's say. Uh, don't know, but that's an interesting detail, right? They didn't just get in, get out. You know, they uh, went in and stayed for a few days before flying back home uh, using plane tickets that were presumably paid by someone, right? Uh, and, and again, at least in Hazard Denny's case, we know it wasn't them. We know that they got donations to do it. So the question is, can we identify those people? So one final note before we move on. Um, this is obviously something that the committee is very interested in. And we won't know until after they act, uh, whether that be in the form of a report or criminal referrals. Um, but just, again, what are the overall, what's the overall significance of these cases of someone uh, who is, you know, apparently indigent like McCracken uh, or people who are participating as a group, but we know that the group was uh, paid by some donor to go to D.C., make uh, flight arrangements, and book into hotels. Um, so what, what does this look like, right? What kinds of people would be funding it? Would it be individuals? Uh, or would it be, I don't know, uh, congressional campaigns uh, in different congressional districts? Uh, or could it be perhaps some combination of those things? Or could it be um, 501c3 groups? Uh, we don't know. I, I am just, I'm very suspicious, though, that there's going to be a, a paper trail uh, that leads back to something like a 501c3. And the reason why is the way in which this was organized. Um, first off, it's obviously suspect that rather than booking the hotels and flights directly, uh, it, it appears that money was simply given to individuals and these individuals were then, uh, you know, free to buy hotel uh, accommodations and flights on their own. Um, that's obviously not proper practice uh, with regard to record keeping. But moreover, it is an awful lot like the way political organizers would operate if they were, you know, uh, holding an event somewhere, right? And that is why the Stockton... Dustin Stockton and Jennifer Lawrence 
evidence is very, very interesting because that's the kind of thing that at their level, a political organizer might be called upon to do all the time. They're always making hotel arrangements. They're always booking flights. What's interesting is, again, that, that, that lack of a linkage there wherein they wind up, you know, not doing it directly. They're handing out, you know, we don't know if it's cash or checks, but they're, uh, someone, at least, is giving money to individuals and groups, such as the, the Patriot Boys uh, or uh, Covered Dragon, right, Mr. McCracken, um, to go and go to D.C., take part in the riot, and, uh, you know, stay in a hotel for four or five days. Um, and again, you know, why would they, why, why do it for four or five days? That is interesting as well. It may relate to plans to actually occupy the capital itself uh, to try to, you know, buy time to get um, the alternate slates of electors up from Republican-controlled states. Um, but, and again, it is interesting, too, that, you know, they apparently, uh, Denny and Hazard, they know what hotel the, the Proud Boys are staying at. So that, again, suggests uh, either... Uh, sort of, you know, a loose network, right? People organizing voluntarily and autonomously online, uh, or perhaps what, you know, a central agent, uh, someone like a Dustin Stockton to say, hey, you know, buy, you know, book yourself a flight. Um, I'm not going to do it directly for you, but book yourself a flight, make hotel reservations. Here's some good hotels. And I know there's a lot of like-minded people staying, you know, at this particular hotel, for example. Um, but you know, just paying them cash up front and booking hotels or, you know, paying them some sum of money in some way, uh, and then having them buy hotel rooms and flights is very suspicious. And, you know, uh, as he went in to testify earlier this week, uh, Mr. Stockton had a binder with him and we don't know what's in that binder. I, I feel like we're back in the McCarthy area era where, you know, there's a, a list of names of, anonymous people at the State Department that the, the House Un-American Affairs Committee is interested in. Nonetheless, that's that's where we're at with that, you know, and the, the look of absolute unmitigated glee. Um, you know, I mean, this guy, is he's just a messed up character. Nonetheless, you know, let him testify. Great, you know, if MAGA world is imploding and there are people within MAGA world who are willing to uh, give that kind of evidence because they've suffered what psychologists would call a narcissistic injury, uh, then more power to them. So, you know, could also be some combination of groups and actors, right? So uh, Stockton and Lawrence, you know, perhaps, or different other groups. Turning Point USA, for example, uh, very used to sending people around the country and renting buses uh, and, you know, Turning Point Action, rather. Um, it's hard to keep these, these, these affiliated groups uh, straight. Um, and it, it does suggest a new kind of avenue for sort of amateur sleuthing. Um, if you look at Robert Pape, uh, he's done this very interesting county-by-county county level analysis wherein he finds that the, uh, the most successful predictor at a county level of who sent rioters to the Capitol, insurrectionists to the Capitol, uh, is demographic change. He had, he had initially thought it was be, you know, change in economic circumstances and, you know, nope, it was racism. Um, so K 
county by county level is done in large part, I think, because, you know, a lot of the data sets are readily available. Also, because in social science, I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but you want big in, right? In order to achieve statistical significance, you need a large number of cases. Using county level data is a very way, good way to achieve that. But for investigative purposes and for tracking the money purposes, um, it might be useful to actually look at it uh, by congressional district. So especially for members of the Sedition Caucus, you know, it's highly suspicious that Lauren Boebert is definitely pictured uh, with Mr. McCracken, right? And he's holding a $100 bill and he is from her district. And she is there on January 6th, front row seats. And he is also there attacking cops. So that is, you know, something where uh, each candidate, each uh, member of Congress, they have a campaign committee. They're hooked up with uh, 501c3s. They're hooked up in, in various ways with various ways to, to distribute funds. So, um, you know, rather than some central organizing agent, some of this could have been done through Congress. Some, you know, and so looking at the, the different members, uh, you know, not necessarily the members, but looking at the different insurrectionists who've been charged and, you know, where they came from. Um, you know, like I said, Shane Jenkins is from uh, the 2nd District of Texas. That's Dan Crenshaw's district. So we don't know. Not making any specific allegations against any specific member of Congress, but it might be interesting to see how this breaks down on a congressional district level. Because if you've got two districts next to one another, if whose partisan composition is similar in terms of uh, their Cook score, uh, you know, how many, what the, the advantage is with regard to a given party. Uh, and yet you also have, you know, one congressional district sending a whole slew of insurrectionists, uh, you know, and another one sending, you know, virtually none. That would be suspicious, right? I mean, we have already seen, you know, uh, state legislators in, in Pennsylvania and perhaps other places sending buses of people. So, you know, rest assured, committee is looking at all of that. Um, you know, we don't know what the FBI is doing. And I know a lot of people don't have a lot of confidence in the director. Um, but nonetheless, if the committee takes a lead and winds up making referrals out of all this, then, you know, they go directly to the Department of Justice and they have not been reluctant to make charges so far. So whatever people's criticism of Merrick Garland, if Congress hands him... Uh, a contempt of Congress citation referral, uh, you know, he's been going after those people, right? So, um, you know, if there are criminal charges that emerge out of this, that, you know, again, they they will definitely, uh, you know, have the marshal service go and pick those up or organize a self-surrender, uh, depending. All right, I now wanted to move on to the question of the Army report. Now, again, what's the significance of this document? This is a document that was mentioned by Matthews and, you know, perhaps General, Major General Walker um, with regard to the, you know, the DOD OIG report. Specifically, uh, Colonel Matthews alleged that the memorandum, uh, sorry, alleged that this Army report served as the basis for the DOD OIG report. And again, as I was recording the last episode, the Army report was released. So after reading both the memorandum 
uh, and the report, you know, I, I, uh, you know, and the uh, DOD OIG report, you know, I, I have uh, some questions uh, about some of that. And I know there are some people who find Major General Walker's account uh, somewhat suspect or self-serving. And no doubt, you know, uh, they're trying to cover their butts. Um, but on the other hand, I think they're angry. I mean, coming crawl, reading this, you know, again, I don't want to rehash old ground, but reading this, uh, Colonel Matthews is clearly, clearly very angry about the events of January 6th. And I personally have found that the account of events um, that have been relayed by General Walker in his testimony um, and by Colonel Matthews in his memo to be the most consistent and well supported by the established facts. And again, this is not a coincidence. I don't think this is new to the committee in that regard. Um, some people are apparently not aware, but Major General Walker is, of course, the House Sergeant at Arms and has been since, I believe, April 26th of this past year. So they took this witness and they got him to safety, right? They took him out of his military career and put him somewhere where he, in effect, would be secure. Uh, so that's, you know, I think heartening evidence that Congress, or at least the House, uh, finds that, you know, Major General Walker is blameless in the delays in the deployment. And I, you know, I, if uh, the people who want to pin this on the D.C. National Guard are, are to be believed, why is Nancy Pelosi hiring Major General Walker to be the House Sergeant at Arms, right? So committee has known about this. Congress has known about this. The House, at least, has known about this. And Major General Walker is that the House Sergeant at Arms. And I, I don't think that that is a coincidence. All right. So where I dealt with the memo, talked about the, the DOD OIG report uh, a little bit in that context. And, you know, I read the Army report and it, it became a little bit more clear to me why this thing wasn't released and why it was that um, Colonel Matthews says, well, people of the Pentagon pressured General Piot to not release this thing um, because it's a hot mess, right? The fact that this was supposedly the, the basis uh, for the testimony of Pentagon officials uh, at the House Oversight and Reform uh, Committee um, is laughable and, you know, whether or not it's untrue or not, um, you know, I, I think that there's ample evidence to suggest that it's not. But I actually don't think that that's the reason why this report was um, suppressed. That was the only word for it. Uh, honestly, I think it's because it is, in fact, actually embarrassing. Both, you know, how it's written, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll talk about uh, that in a little bit. Um, but it's, it's not authoritative, right? And... I know Matthews alleges that was the basis for the DOG OIG report, but at least in terms of the language, I can't find that. What is consistent is the sources, same sources, same sources. In the Army report, it's relying on basically anonymous people, right? The DOG OIG report also basically relying on the same people who tell the same story that, again, does not hold up under even the slightest scrutiny. Um, so, I, you know, my suspicion is that this report was prepared by a small number of people or, or even one person 
Uh, and so one of the things that I personally, as an academic, look for when I'm looking at a suspect document is where did they get this from? Uh, there are many people, you know, I, I talked about how, you know, last time, how the Walker memo, sorry, the Matthews memo was a little bit rough, um, that really, you know, tightly reads like a written document, a legal document in the first half, then kind of falls apart a little bit and tightens up again in the conclusion. Well, if there are some issues with regard to, you know, some of the writing in the Matthews memo where it gets a little personal and then other seg segments that really read like unedited notes, um, the Army report is just bad, right? It's just not written by someone who's really fully, functionally a literate person. Um, and, you know, and what was that? Well, where did they get this stuff? Where did they, you know, come up with the content of the Army report? Um, it's, a, it's a bit curious. So one of the things that, again, as an academic I look for is where did they find the actual words, the actual sequence of text that they're using? Was this written? Um, or did they crib it off of somewhere else? So on further examination, uh, you know, I have found that these citations are are not very good. Um, there are places in the Army report that are um, backed up by footnotes, right? So you can tell where they got the text from. Hey, no harm, no foul. You know, I would not dock you points for that. That's what you're supposed to do. Then there are sections that are just taken from various Army documents and just cut and pasted, right? So, you know, rather than uh, even, even changing the wording a little bit, they've used the exact same wording that appears without citation or attribution. Um, I'm not suggesting that that's a sign of, you know, somehow uh, academic dishonesty, right? I mean, this is the Army. Uh, what I am suggesting is that this is a sign of sort of intellectual sloppiness, uh, perhaps lack of preparation, uh, perhaps uh, someone who's not really used to writing, as a, opposed to the DOD OIG report, right, which is, you know, 300 plus pages long uh, and prepared by professionals. Now, there was no copy editor on the Army report. Uh, they didn't give this to anybody uh, to, to review it. And so part of it is, again, that, you know, the basis for accuracy you know, if you don't know what your sources are and you don't know where the, the language is coming from, uh, you know, you can't, why are you going to use this as a basis for congressional testimony? So I'll give you just uh, just one example. There's this, this passage from the Army report. Quote, troops should be used only as a last resort in direct civilian or law enforcement roles. Police should wear distinct uniform colors during protests when the military is present and the military must be careful about lending out equipment to civilian law enforcement that is labeled military, end quote. Now, I look for this, uh, you know, to see if, well, where's this language come from? Is this from some army manual? Is this from the regs? Um, believe it or not, where I, the place where I found it was uh, from an uh, article from the Military Times, uh, written by a Megan Myers, entitled, Top Pentagon officials offer lessons learned from military's response to George Floyd protests. And it, it's very odd. Active duty troops should be used only as a last resort in direct civilian law enforcement roles. 
police should wear distinct uniform colors during protests when the military is present. And troops should be careful about lending out equipment to law enforcement with the word military in order to avoid confusing civilians. So what does that mean? Uh, there is a, a very, very, very infinitesimal chance, it can't happen by probability, that this was simply cut and pasted from an article appearing in the Military Times. Unless both of these writers are copying from another source that I was unable to find. Um, and I'm pretty good at finding sources. So why would you do this? Why there's you know why would you uh, have an unsourced citation of this kind? And again, this is not the only one, uh, but you know this one is particularly glaring because you know this isn't something definitional from some army regulation. This is out of a you know a journalistic product uh, produced for the Military Times. So um, that is just very very curious. I mean the the way the author cites some sources using footnotes, but also just omits citing many, many more. And, you know, again, this goes back to, well, why wouldn't this thing, why would it be suppressed? Well, partly it's just, it's just embarrassing. I mean, this is not up to anything like a professional standard. So I, I don't really infer anything broader from this than that. Um, you know, again, Major General Walker claims that the Army report was drafted at the direction of Lieutenant General Piot. And the whole thing just seems rather slapdash. Uh, it doesn't seem like something that's been drafted over a long period of time with the aid of staff. And whoever the author is, uh, they wouldn't pass my class, right? Uh, <laughs> this is, it's a cut and paste job is what it is. Uh, what people call mosaic plagiarism. So, yeah, after comparing the, you know, these documents, I, I, it gives me... Uh, a number of questions and a, a number of questions about how the thing was reported in Politico. So, you know, because Politico was the source of both Matthew's memo uh, that was given to them and the army report. Now, the one thing that I, I do find inconsistent in the Matthew's memo is the claim that Matthews said that he hadn't read the army report. Um, given his position Given his contacts, that seems extremely unlikely. Uh, and, you know, just it, that really seems, you know, and, and there's nothing wrong if he did, but he, he doesn't say that he does. He says specifically that, no, nobody has seen the Army report, um, you know, and yet somehow uh, there's this copy of it floating around. It's not a Word document. Uh, it's not a, uh, you know, or PDF or anything like that. It's actually, there, there is a PDF, but it's just pictures of the pages uh, in order to actually look, you know, at the text. I had to do a, a word conversion. Um, I mean, it's legible, but, you know. So I think, I think Walker and Matthews, or, you know, at least Matthews probably saw this report. And, I, you know, not that there's anything uh, wrong with that. But, um, and we know also that the committee, definitely had the Army report. Why? Well, because we know that the Senate oversight, uh, the, uh, sorry, the, yeah, the Senate, I'm, I'm blanking on the, the name of the committee, but is, is actually cited in the, oh, that's right, because there's more than one Senate committee that was looking at this and issued a report. Anyway, so that report from the Senate uh, actually cites the Army report. So there are sections that are drawn from the Army report as a citation um, that are reproduced 
in the uh, Senate report into uh, these very questions. So, um, you know, I, I think that if, if the committee had the Army report, Walker almost certainly had it, either through him as congressional contacts uh, or someone else at the Pentagon, right? Because, you know, Matthews makes a, a kind of an allusion to this that, you know, other officers uh, at the Pentagon had talked about the Army report, and that's how he claimed he heard of it. Um, now, again, the, the author, the report has no author listed. That's significant. The Army report has no author listed. That's a problem if you're going to use this as the basis for testimony before Congress. Uh, Walker slash Matthews, uh, Colonel Matthews at least, says that it is Lieutenant General Piot. Now, again, the commonality, the DOD-OIG report relies heavily on anonymous sources, and uh, the Army report uh, is even less well-sourced, to put it mildly. So there's, there's actually more citations uh, from these anonymous sources uh, than there are in the Army report, which, by the way, is dated March 18th. So, uh, yeah, it's not even, I mean, again, we don't know where this thing comes from. It's just the Army. We, we don't even know, like, well, okay, Army. Does that mean Army staff? Presumably. You know, I, I don't know. Um, but also, the, again, the, the Politico article that released this memo, this uh, report, um, there are also a number of problems with that. It's like, this is a, our source for the Walker memo uh, that slash walker matthews memo it's also the source for the army report uh, i have no doubt that both of these documents are 100 legitimate um you know i mean it's you know and and, that, and that's always a question right well you know would politico be faking in this army report no no it's not because um we already have sections of the army report that appear in the Senate committee report. So it's, it's, the Army report is definitely legitimate. But in the reporting on it, I mean, there's some weaknesses. So, for example, the Politico article finally acknowledges that the, the calls between Walker and Ryan McCarthy uh, never happened. That didn't actually appear in the first article. That actually didn't appear in the article on the Matthews uh, memo. Um, maybe they didn't have time to read it. I don't know. But it doesn't actually mention how Walker has asked to resolve this issue, right? Walker says that McCarthy should have to report what phones he used to make the calls, right? So, you know, if we, we had those call, those call logs from Ryan McCarthy, we could see whose side they, they support. I suspect that Major General Walker's phone records are already with the committee. Now, the, the Army claims that the Army report, quote, comprised a survey of existing law, authorities, and Army report records of phone calls, correspondence, and movement of its personnel, end quote. That's what the Army itself uh, officially says about the Army report. A survey of existing law, authorities, and Army records of phone calls, correspondence, and movement of its personnel. Here's the problem. None of those sources are actually cited in the report, right? It just says, well, it's a, it's a survey. But those sources aren't cited. So they just, you know, and again, why was this report suppressed? Well, you, you know, it's absolutely untraceable. 
Um, you know, there's there's no actual record. It's it's a closed loop. Um, and again, the question of the authorship of the Army Report is unresolved, and uh, the political article itself doesn't raise or even address the question of Ryan McCarthy's uh, and Chris Miller's whereabouts, which is a central uh, question in the dispute. And um, there's also, again, the question that Matthews raises, uh, the work product that was produced by the 40 people that Flynn supposedly had working on D.C. National Guard report. On, right? Sorry, not the D.C. National Guard report, the D.C. National Guard deployment. And a uh, political art article doesn't deal with why the Army report was never publicly released. If it's good enough for, you know, Lieutenant General Piot to testify, uh, to serve as the basis for his testimony, um, then certainly, you know, one would think it, it would be uh, or could be made available to the public. So, I mean, there, there are also non-nefarious reasons not to release it, uh, mainly because there are, you know, perhaps perceptions that releasing this report would uh, interfere with the DOD OIG investigation, but I don't think that that was actually uh, their problem. The Politico article also doesn't deal with the changing narrative with regard to Flynn's participation, right? It's changed at least three times. First, he has nothing to do with it. Then he walks in and out of the room once. Then, you know, according to Walker's account, which is bolstered by all available evidence, including a room full of D.C. National Guard officers who are willing to swear to it under oath, that he set up the phone call. He set rather the video conference. He set up, set up the video conference from 3.05 p.m. and was an active participant in that video conference all the way to the end, uh, all the way through, you know, 5.08 when uh, the D.C. National Guard is actually authorized you know, not by Charles Flynn, not by, even directly by uh, Ryan McCarthy. Um, so, you know, that is, that changing narrative uh, would be of interest uh, to the committee. And, you know, quite frankly, journalists, right? They should address these questions, uh, you know. And also, they, they failed to know the retraction. There was a retraction of an Army press release um, that retracted the comments that changed the narrative on Charles Flynn's participation. No one has ever really followed up on that. There's, there's going to be uh, people at the Pentagon in the press office who are associated with that. And someone, I think, at the committee uh, should actually talk to those people. So how what was that process of, of that retraction? How did that work? And again, there's also the question of the DOD OID report, uh, who's, you know, where these anonymous sources that uh, really formed the heart, the basis of all this testimony, are identified by Matthews and Walker in the, in the Army memo. The Politico article doesn't reference that at all. Um, but there's still questions. And I think that these people should actually go testify. I don't know if they're going to do it in front of the January 6th committee or uh, one of the many defense oversight committees, but they should testify somewhere publicly rather than uh, this anonymous testimony nonsense. And again, another point not raised in the article, uh, the question of why Walker has to hear from McConville, of all people, that deployment is not authorized. Uh, or, sorry, that deployment was actually authorized um, at 5.08. But, and, you know, again, that's the chain of command supposed to go through Ryan McCarthy. 
why why is he still trying to delay further? That's my problem, right? He's still at 5.08, you know, still trying to delay the deployment even further. And also, there is the question of the existence of the plan. You will recall in the Walker memo, the Matthews memo. Um, I keep making that mistake because I, I see them as co-authors here. Uh, you know, this plan that's drawn up, does it exist? Uh, McCarthy, you know, supposedly worked on it. Uh, supposedly, uh, General Flynn, who's not even in the chain of command, has 40 people working on it. Um, you know, McCarthy's job is to issue orders. Well, that's a document. Where Where is that document? Where is this plan? So, yeah. And uh, finally, and this is, you know, a great un unanswered question, I think. There's that one section, that highly personal section in the, the Matthews memo that the Politico journalists failed to follow up on, which is, what was it that happened wherein Colonel Matthews saved General Charles Flynn's career? What does he mean by that? That whole section, you know, how, you know, and, and why is he bringing it in here? No one, I have yet to see any reporting at all on the question of what it is that Colonel Matthews is alluding to with regard to uh, some kind of protection that, uh, you know, he was affording uh, General Flynn with regard to the DOD OIG, right? That's, his, that's what he says. He says, DOD OIG had been interested in, in uh, General Charles Flynn and that I basically pulled his butt out of the fire on that. What's, what's the charge? What are the specific allegations? Uh, and why hasn't anyone asked any more questions about it? Finally, that the last, last ma uh, major topic uh, in this episode is the issue of the Meadows PowerPoint, which had been handed over by Mark Meadows to the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack. Now, I'm going to call it the Meadows PowerPoint, even though we know, of course, that Mark Meadows is not, in fact, the author. The author is, in fact, a retired Army colonel, one Philip Waldron, who specialized in psyops or psychological operations, which is really just sort of a, a revamped word for propaganda. He is an agitprop specialist. Um, and I will note right off the bat that uh, Mr. Waldron has received a subpoena. Uh, in fact, it was yesterday. The House Select Committee gave Mr. Waldron or announced that he would be being served with a subpoena to testify about his involvement in January 6th uh, and, you know, about the PowerPoint specifically. Um, although one has to imagine that he will be asked other questions because like other re subpoena recipients, Mr. Waldron is a Willard Hotel war room guy. So this is someone who is deep in the thick of it. Now, Meadows, uh, you know, claimed that he was giving over this document simply because he didn't really have anything to do with it. It was something that got emailed to him. Um, and it has really taken off on social media. It's taken off in, in uh, journalistic circles. There's been a huge number of stories on this PowerPoint. Now, what's interesting to me, at least, about this is that it contains essentially nothing new. Now, the material that is in the PowerPoint is stuff that we already knew. We already knew. We have the Eastman memo, which I think is, is in a sense, more significant 
than uh, this PowerPoint presentation. But I just think because it's a PowerPoint, I don't, you know, I don't know why, but for some reason, just the format of it, because of the visual format, perhaps, um, and because it, there, it does use some language that I think, as we'll see in a moment, uh, is, is kind of unambiguous. Maybe that's why it's taken off, um, you know. And, I mean, there are even articles suggesting, well, this is the, uh, you know, this is the Watergate tapes. This is the tape on the door moment. Um, I don't know that that is necessarily the case. I think that the evidence that we've had so far, thank you very much, is already extremely damning and damaging. Um, but, yeah. So it came in late last week, uh, you know, part of Mark Meadows' submission to the House Select Committee. Uh, before, of course, he stopped, you know, decided not to uh, participate any longer. Um, and, of course, you know, he is now facing a criminal referral for contempt of Congress. So that was approved uh, first by the committee and then by the House as a whole. Um, of course, with the usual suspects, I, I think it's only Kinzinger and Cheney, uh, you know, among Republicans. So who actually supported that, uh, both at the committee level and on the House floor vote. Um, so the PowerPoint itself is, you know, just, yeah, it's, it's Phil Waldron's product. And, you know, the idea, I don't want to digress too much, uh, but we, we saw Flynn and Piot involved in delaying the National Guard. Here we have a retired Army colonel. Uh, the idea that we have retired colonels who are subverting democracy should be alarming to everyone. I mean, we already, we've already seen any number of military figures who actually took part in the insurrection itself. Uh, but when you have, you know, the government funding psyops and developing these psyops uh, potentials, and then these psyops operators on their own voluntaristically deploying psyops against the American people we're reaching banana republic territory, right? So there is the question of, do we need to have the fucking DOG being in, invested, investing money in creating experts and psyops if they are then going to weaponize that training against American democracy? Uh, pardon my language, but it's just, this is and ought to be extremely alarming. But we already knew that, all right? We already knew Phil, Philip Waldron was. Uh, you know, nonetheless, again, this is really caught on. And so I think that if nothing else, even if it doesn't add to the mountain of evidence, um, it does add to, I think, the urgency in the public, which is, I think, one area of this that the, perhaps the committee and the government have been lagging behind in. So to the extent that this uh, serves to mobilize people and make them aware of the danger to electoral democracy in America... And you'll note that I avoid using the actual term democracy as much as possible, right? I like to be specific. We do have elections uh, to the extent to which we have voter suppression and we don't have automatic voter registration, things like that. The, the, the democratic aspect of those elections uh, is somewhat problematic compared to other developed countries, other advanced liberal democracies. Uh, nonetheless, we do have electoral democracy because we have elections, even though uh, with gerrymandering uh, and uh, that, you know, various uh, means that we have of privately funding our elections, uh, the, the democratic aspect of democracy in the United States 
uh, may in fact be overstated at this point. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's the sourcing of this, you know, is, is pretty unequivocal, right? We know it's Waldron's product and we know it was sent to Meadows. Um, and it could be that one of the reasons why this was released is, is a kind of a smokescreen, right? Uh, Meadows is saying, you know what? Don't worry about me. Don't worry about my phone records anymore. Um, you know, I, he's pointing the finger at Waldron with this. Uh, but again, you know, I don't know that that matters. I write, I really don't, you know, I mean, it, it's out there, it's catching all the public. And so that's why I, I think it, it has to be addressed, even though in a sense, it shows that there's the same level of premeditation, the same level of culpability uh, amongst the same actors. Um, I mean, the one thing it does do is it diminishes the sort of plausible deniability within the Trump White House, uh, you know, with regard to uh, the, the plan to uh, overthrow the, the results of the election on January 6th. All right, so I'll go through this as, as quickly as I can. Again, a lot of this isn't new. Uh, the PowerPoint itself is dated January 5th, 2021. Uh, first page is some key talking points. The Chinese systematically gained control over our election system, cons constituting a national security emergency. All right, um, that claim is nonsense. You know, I hope that we'd recognize that that is just complete and utter nonsense. They tried to substantiate this through uh, various sort of guilt by association tactics, um, but it's nonsense. You know, if the Chinese actually controlled our electoral outcomes, they would just be electing uh, Chinese Communist Party people, right? Well, why skip the, you know, skip the middleman? We would just have Chinese Communist Party people running our government. You know, we wouldn't have to have this whole system of uh, donations, you know, campaign contributions. Uh, you know, we would just have Chinese Communist Party figures right running the country. It's absolute uh, garbage. Uh, the electronic voting machines were compromised and cannot be trusted to provide an accurate vote count. This is very frustrating to me because uh, part of what has happened over the course of the last 20 years since Bush v. Gore, really, well, 21 years now, since the election of 2000, is that actually our elections mechanisms have gotten a lot better. And uh, part of why these claims are credible is because people just don't follow the internal workings of our uh, election process. And that's understandable. They're, they're highly technical. Um, but, you know, we, Greg Palast has done great reporting on all this and, and has, like, you know, through over the course of the entire period uh, of concern, there's been a lot of activism on this, right? So a lot of efforts to reform voting and voting processes. Uh, for one thing, to have uh, verifiable, recountable paper ballots, whether they be um, ballots that are marked by the voter or ballots, ballots that are, are produced uh, by a electronic voting machine, right? So that was a major milestone. I mean, initially, following all the mess of 2000, um, we saw these companies come out with electronic voting machines that didn't produce verifiable paper ballots. Well, now that's, that's become the norm. Um, and I think the few jurisdictions that don't have them will, will adopt them soon. What's kind of interesting about all this, by the way, is that for many years, it was Republicans who were blocking all this. You know, they didn't want to do it. And now we actually have it, and suddenly they're complaining about electoral irregularities. Well, 
You know, it was electoral irregularities that it made it possible for Bush to question the outcome in 2000. So, you know, we actually, we have these verifiable paper trails now, and they want to do these, quote, forensic audits. We, you know, that wouldn't be possible if not for the fact that we already implemented these changes to make our elections more secure. Now, are these, you know, electronic glitches and things and problems that have occurred over the years with these electronic machines with, you know, vote flipping? Yeah, but it is, you know, it's mind-blowing to me that, you know, they're, they're actually trying to weaponize this when for many, many years they've been on the other side of this issue. To restore confidence, the fail-safe, and I'm reading again from the, the talking points, to restore confidence, the fail-safe of counting the paper ballots must be used to determine who won the election for President Sanders' congressional representatives. Okay, first off, um, you're talking about members of the House, right? So you're talking about representatives, uh, congressional representatives. This, off, this PowerPoint was authored by someone who thinks that Congress is synonymous with the House, which is absolutely bizarre. Congress is comprised of two houses, the upper house being the Senate, the lower house being the House of Representatives. And even the nomenclature indicates that this is someone who does not understand the workings of the legislative branch of government. Finally, hand counts reported by the media are not really hand counts and easily subverted. Yeah, just complete and utter nonsense. So it's got a summary of domestic voter fraud. Uh, it claims that there's double voters, deceased voters, out-of-state and out-of-county voters, non-citizen or felon voters, fake ballots, ballot stuffing, other illegal ballots, uh, violations of state law. And that refers to many of the uh, changes that were implemented by state legislatures across the country in response to COVID. Um, but those aren't illegal. You know, they made changes to election law on an emergency basis. And, you know, Interestingly, uh, it says that the, these changes, these, you know, it occurred in eight contested states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, and New Mexico. Now, in the original aftermath uh, of the election, they would always make references to North Carolina, my home state, but um, Trump won North Carolina. It was called from, I think, on November 13th or 14th. So after that, North Carolina just drops off the list. Uh, but, you know, again, what are the contested states? Well, they're, they're states where it was both close and Trump lost, right? So if Trump won and it was close, the election was absolutely fine. So, which is, you know, again, they're basing on the outcome, not actual fraud. Uh, there's just a screen cap of a CNN uh, screen saying that, you know, it's been happening for a while. There's CNN video for, from Kentucky uh, and is looking at the uh, electoral race between Bashir and Bevan. But again, um, you know, if the Communist Party of China or Democrats or whomever were able to control outcomes in this way, you wouldn't have Republicans controlling a majority of state legislatures. You wouldn't have them in uh, state houses, according to governor's mansions all across the country. It's just absolute nonsense. Then moves on to focus on, quote, irregularities in the 2020 election. Um, and some of this is due to people who have never even 
followed election returns in their entire life. Donald J. Trump was winning by a significant margin across all key states November 3rd evening. Okay, first of all, that's not true. Secondly, the way election returns come in varies differently from state to state and jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Um, there are some time, places where large urban areas wind up reporting late because there simply aren't enough polling places because of the packing and cracking strategy uh, and poll closures where poll places are have become few and far between. So there are long lines and they wind up reporting late. Uh, or there simply is just so many votes that they have issues tabulating all these votes uh, in a timely fashion. Well, sometimes, though, election returns can be uh, coming late from rural areas. Uh, these smaller places that don't have the election infrastructure, even though they don't have as many people, sometimes their returns will come in late. And elections can break. It's simply not the case that, you know, election returns come in, one Republican vote, one Democratic vote, one Republican... You know, there, there, there can be later returns that wind up coming in that trend one way or another. Happens in every single election. Um, and so the, these claims are just nonsensical. And so they're talking about these, these massive spikes. Again, nonsensical. That's just sheer and utter nonsense. And they use these variety of... Um, uh, graphics that they've taken from the New York Times, where they show what they claim to show are injections of votes uh, for Biden, right? Well, these these are not injections of votes. These are, this is simply part of the normal counting process. Sometimes you have, you know, votes coming in, you have larger jurisdictions reporting, uh, but they're claiming that, you know, that's a result of the fix. No, that that's not. That's just normal part of every election you look at any election, the charts and the graphs of election returns are going to happen the same way. You know, and it happened here in North Carolina. I was following that closely, uh, particularly the Senate race. And, you know, you had uh, Tillis uh, coming from behind as all of these rural places started reporting. And, you know, that's just what happens sometimes. Sometimes, depending upon what places wind up reporting earlier versus later, you wind up having people getting the majority of the votes that are coming in late as the, the votes are being tabulated. Perfectly normal. You've got these, uh, some of these slides are just giant charts of crazy. They look like, you know, the, the figures that have like yarn, right? Usually the red yarn that they, they show uh, in different, you know, the wall of crazy that has become uh, something like a meme in our movies. Um, and it's nonsense. So you just got flowcharts of nonsense where it appears that if you just put enough words on the, the PowerPoint, you know, that it, it'll mean something, you know, it, it doesn't. And you've got things such as, quote, adjudicated ballots are totally at the whim of the operator or malicious actor. Massive numbers of ballots are were routed here. They can be sent off-site, downloaded to Excel spreadsheets, manipulated, and then re-uploaded into the system. Audit logs in Antrim, Michigan for this had been deleted as audit logs for any of the files sent or received by the system. Well, first off, the Antrim County issue is, a, again, a complete red herring. It's a county that Trump won and won handily. 
And, you know, why this is their go-to example, I don't know. You know, and they keep auditing a, a lot of these places that are, you know, where Trump won. And, you know, the audit results, like in Arizona, Biden won by more votes than they had originally projected. Um, and even their so-called cyber ninjas upheld the, the original results. So, again, a lot of this is just nonsense on stilts, right? Uh, I think it was Jeremy Bentham who said that about theology. Could be wrong. But it's not even on stilts. So it's just plain and total nonsense. They claim the issue is national security, election fraud, and foreign interference. Well, you know, I didn't hear much about that in, in 2016. You know, they, these concerns were consistently minimized. And I there is, a, there is lovely on, on slide 12. The, one tactic is part of a larger strategic plan. Other tactics include riots, threats, censorship, looting, etc. This is something that was authored uh, on January 5th. And, you know, I don't know if they're, this is a self-description here, right? Because the very next day, these people wind up supporting uh, riots, uh, threats, etc. So, again, they make claims about China and Venezuela, uh, the goal of which is to, quote, subvert the will of United States voters and install a China ally. Um, a, a part of an ongoing globalist socialist operation. I don't know who these globalist socialists are, right? I mean, when you talk about globalists, many times you're talking about multinational corporations. I don't see them as being particularly socialist. I'd hate to imagine what they think, you know. I mean, if, if multinational corporations are socialists, then I, I would hate to see what these people regard as fascism. It also includes the same sort of debunked claims, completely debunked claims about Smartmatic machines uh, attempting to tie them to Venezuela. Uh, and again, just nonsense. They got a lovely graphic with a Chinese flag. Uh, claims that the Chinese Communist Party has financial control of Dominion voting machines. Absolutely not true. And I think we're going to have an interesting lawsuit to that effect. Uh, it, it claims to link China through to UBS securities, UBS being, of course, a Swiss bank. Uh, and, you know, that is nonsensical. It all made sense. This is classic Chewbacca defense. On slide 18, it gets even deeper in a slide called Money Trails. It's not just the Chinese communists. Oh, no. No, it's also the Venezuelan government. Okay, we already heard about them but also technical and intel officials, as well as the United Kingdom, Italy, Spain, and Cuba. All right, so we've got all... If you just apparently throw enough names of enough different countries on there, somehow that the idea is that this somehow becomes plausible, when in fact, you know, the people who actually follow election integrity and election security, uh, there have been enormous improvements or of course, the last 20 years. So, yeah. So they, they then make more allegations about Smartmatic, um, that, you know, makes allegations with, with regard to some, you know, Chinese-based technology firm. Well, look, I, I, I don't know why you're doing this on PowerPoint, because there's no, no one in the entire tech sector, if you, you know, if you don't scratch the surface, oh, they're all, you know, it's all tied to China right, doesn't mean that they're actually controlling anything. 
And I, I don't know if this is part of some like broader presentation, if there's actually, uh, you know, Mr. Waldron is going to be standing up in, in front of a projector and, and giving this presentation. Um, but, you know, there's a perpetrator slide, there's a recommendation slide. One of the more incriminating uh, bits of it comes on uh, page or slide 23, where uh, there's a bullet point that says, declare a national security emergency. Um, so, yeah. And that's, I mean, that, that's basically the plan, right? I mean, it goes back to the, the Eastman memo with this national security angle. Uh, on the next page, you have the, the perpetrators. Local zealots who engage in illegal ballot harvesting. Uh, the most well-grounded claim of ballot harvesting was made, as I've said before, I think, uh, here in North Carolina in the 2018 congressional election uh, for the campaign of one Mark Harris, a Trump-endorsed Republican. So well-positioned to talk about ballot harvesting because they are the ones who do it. And they then say, quote, illegal voter rolls. And they spell rolls R-O-L-E-S. In the context of elections, uh, you know, that would be kind of like spelling polls, P-O-L-E-S. Rolls are not the kind of, it's not a list of voters, right? That's R-O-L-L-S. So if you're going to make all these claims about your secret knowledge of these sophisticated electioneering techniques that are being deployed by Cuba, Spain, the United Kingdom, Venezuela, and the Communist Party of China, you should learn the difference between roles, as in something that an actor might do, and roles, as in a list of voters that is actually used. So I don't know why this is taken to be credible by anyone, except for the fact that, you know, they desperately want to believe that. Now, I should mention that with regard to the, the pagination of this PowerPoint, the slides and the ordering, that this is the publicly released PowerPoint, 36 slides long, uh, apparently the one that Meadows sent, we don't actually have yet. Um, now on a publicly available basis anyway, the committee definitely has it. It's a couple, it's a couple of pages shorter, so maybe they edited it down, maybe they took out I can't believe they would take out the the more absurd claims. They probably took out the ones that were slowing down the presentation a little bit. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, they're claiming it's local zealots, it's electronic voting machines, it's, it's foreign actors, and these all, you know, they all demonstrably occurred, but not necessarily in a coordinated fashion, which is weird, right? Because I thought the whole thing was being done uh, by China, right? The, the bugbear. So, you know, again, complete and utter nonsense made up out of whole cloth. And the, the claim is made that, you know, foreign actors had to shift votes across the country in order to achieve their objectives, which was a Biden victory. So I don't know why, you know, they, Democrats, you know, ever uh, don't win everything, right? I mean, if the foreign actors had the ability to do this, so, um, there's also a claim that we just, you know, what they need to do, what the plotters want to do is just throw out all the mail-in ballots, quote, disqualify all the counterfeit ballots and account all the remaining legal paper ballots nationwide to restore confidence in the election outcome. 
Uh, no, that's not what it would do. It would just overturn a democratically uh, determined election outcome, and it would not restore confidence. It would make the United States into a banana republic. So, yeah. And again, there's allegations that Dominion and ES&S are the, the, the makers of machines who perpetrated the, the, the fraud. Well, guess what? You know, uh, that's going to be determined in a uh, suit that Dominion has filed in the state of Delaware against Fox News Corporation. And, you know, these claims are largely baseless. They go on to repeat the same Antrim County, Michigan uh, claims where, again, Trump, you know, they got these vote night percentages uh, that are, for one thing, well, they're, they're, they're incorrect, um, you know. And for, for another thing, uh, there's been nothing proved with regard to Interim County. Those claims that were debunked, uh, you know, long before this even happened. So, yeah, I mean, they're, you know, it's a little more complicated than what they make it out to, to be here. But it's, uh, you know, complete and utter nonsense. They're extrapolating from this one rural uh, Michigan county where, by the way, you know, the result was never in question. So, yeah, I don't know what they think is going on there, but, you know, they really, really, really want to imagine that Trump actually won the election. And they've got these projected vote totals on page 28 where, you know, they're basically just saying, well, if we throw out a certain percentage of the vote, Trump wins. That's, that's true in every election. Sure. If you can just arbitrarily throw out the votes of the people that you don't like, then, you know, um... Yeah, you can get the outcome that you want every single time. And they've got these margin figures on slide 29, which are just simply manufactured out of whole cloth. And they, you know, they pick these these counties that, you know, uh, largely are just counties where Trump's not going to do well, you know. So, I mean, counties that, you know, they identify worst mail fraud counties. You know, these were counties that just had um, mail-in ballots, presumably, you know, and then worst machine for all counties. There's no basis on regards of any of it. I mean, you look at, you know, like, what are the machine, what's the machine fraud that they have supposedly, uh, happening in Maricopa County, Arizona, you know, it's just nonsense. They just lost Maricopa County and it's not a question of machine fraud, right? It's a question of, you know, your inability to actually accept legitimate results. Um, and they've, they've got a lot of, you know, they've got results where, where counties where, well, Trump won those counties, you know. I mean, why why have Trump win anyway? If you've got the ability to control the outcome, uh, you know, it doesn't make sense. It's complete and utter nonsense. I mean, the basic strategy appears to be just to throw enough shit against the wall and to see what sticks. Now, it's a little bit technical, but a key component of their, you know, their fraudulent plan to overthrow uh, the election results is outlined on page 33, um, where basically they want to change the COVID restrictions, or rather not restrictions, uh, the increased availability of mail-in and other uh, balloting options. Uh, they just want to arbitrarily throw those out, right, uh, in order to secure the outcome that they want. And I might add that uh, traditionally... Republicans have not disliked mail-in balloting. Uh, in fact, mail-in ballots over the years have 
uh, favored Republicans. Um, many of the people who use mail-in ballots traditionally have been older voters. Many of them are in rural areas where it's just hard for people to get a polling get to a polling place, and also overseas voters, uh, many of whom are in the military. So, um, this the, the claims regarding mail-in balloting uh, are patently absurd, right? Um, you know, we you know they talk about higher rates of fraud, but you're still dealing with really infinitesimally small, vanishingly small levels of fraud, even with regard to mail-in balloting, which again, Republicans have traditionally supported because mail-in, you know, this is like the first time where because of COVID, you had many people who might have ordinarily voted in person uh, voting by mail. And that, you know, arguably there was a really good reason for that, but they just want to throw out all those ballots, even though, you know, they want to then have like the, the SCOTUS state that Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2 has been suspended, um, which again is absolute nonsense. It doesn't require, you know, I mean, if you look at all the changes that states ordinarily make in the electoral process, uh, you know, they actually have the ability to do that, and that's what happened in this case. Uh, but they want to elevate this to a constitutional matter just so they can somehow claim that the, the mail-in ballots that were legitimately issued and counted in good faith can simply be discarded because you don't like the outcome. But, you know, a big part of this is, you know, if you're actually going to do this in a fair and impartial way, how can you be so sure that Trump is going to win, right? Uh, we've had processes like this. You know, we had Arizona, the Arizona fraud it, and ultimately Biden winds up winning that. All right, so at the very end of the PowerPoint, you get to this section, options for 6th of January. Vice President, Vice President Pence seats Republican electors over the objections of Democrats in states where fraud occurred. Again, you don't know that where these states are fraud occurred. You haven't done your investigation. You're just engaging in wishful thinking here, throwing enough poop against the wall and seeing what sticks. Vice President Pence rejects the electors from states where fraud occurred, causing the election to be decided by the remaining electoral votes. Vice President Pence delays the decision in order to allow for a vetting and subsequent counting of all the legal paper ballots, which, again, they've predetermined they're only going to count uh, the ballots that they like. So, again, it's a load of nonsense, but I think that, you know, in part because it is revealed to be a load of nonsense, um, you know, this is going to excite public interest. Uh, and, well, you know, the committee is going to get to talk to Mr. Waldron and see what he has to say about it. Inevitably, uh, Mark Meadows will have to fully comply with the subpoena and, you know, hopefully give truthful and honest testimony and, most importantly, submit his phone records so we'll know exactly who he was talking to and when he was talking to them. But the PowerPoint itself, you know, is just a, another piece of, I think, public evidence that, you know, the main impact here um, is going to be in terms of the court of public opinion. I think more damning stuff, the more damning developments that we've had lately are going to be things such as Dustin Stockton and Jennifer Lawrence uh, and the people who were, you know, I believe they probably have knowledge about paying for people's flights, paying for people's hotel accommodations, uh, and perhaps active recruitment for people who 
are likely to engage in physical violence with the police on January 6th. And, you know, again, um, the PowerPoint, eh, I mean, has less weight in my mind than the, the Eastman memo and their, their legal plan, uh, well, their Ill illegal unconstitutional plan to subvert the electoral process. But it does put it in uh, you know, clear language that talks about having the National Guard, you know, who are not, by the way, authorized in any way to engage in electoral politics. You know, you can't have the National Guard be, the, being the, the vote counters. Um, but this is just, you know, absolute nonsense. But because they're very clear about the fact that they really desperately wanted to create a national security emergency on January 5th, and then the next day, you have this huge riot. Hmm, right? So this is just another means, another plan, another scheme whereby they sought to overturn the election. All right, well, that's it for this week. I didn't even get to the part where Roger Stone testifies in front of the House Select Committee and takes the fifth. But I think that that is going on right now, even as I am recording it. And that's something I think it would, you know, I would that, that would be entertaining, right? And since he's actually apparently going to take the fifth with regard to every question and not answer any of the questions of the committee, they, there's no reason that they, they couldn't or shouldn't or wouldn't televise that. I might add that from the very beginning, both Stone and Bannon are the two that I've, I've identified as like, they're not going to flip. They're not going to say anything. This isn't D Dustin Stockton. This isn't Roger Stone. i sorry. This isn't uh, Jennifer Lawrence. Um, you know, so it, it is kind of, kind of odd, but, you know, like Stone is someone who's, you know, it's his brand and for him to basically be uh, what Nixon would have called a rat fucker, right? I mean, he spent his whole career doing this kind of stuff. Uh, he is one of the few people who's actually engaged in as many criminal conspiracies uh, as the FBI has actually investigated. Most of the time, you know, people make mistakes because they haven't done it before. You know, um, Roger Stone, for, for all of his flaws, you know, I think has this uh, Roy Cohn mafioso attitude that, you know, there's Omerita and he's not going to say anything no matter what the circumstances. Uh, but still, you know, it would be entertaining to see it. And I also fully expect sometime, this is rel still relatively early in the day, uh, later on today, to see some more developments. Uh, because most, many of the news stories, there used to be Arrest Fridays, right? Earlier this week, we had Arrest Friday on a Tuesday. Now, um, many of the developments that we've seen in the January 6th investigation have tended to come out on a Friday. It used to be the case that Friday, the Friday news dump, was where you put a story when you wanted it to die. But lately, with regard to January 6th, it seems like huge stories wind up breaking on a Friday, and it's been happening quite often. And within the last week or so, we've had so many huge developments in the January 6th investigation that I would not be surprised if something huge didn't happen later on today. Um, so look out for that. It's just a, a gut feeling. I have no empirical basis upon which to make that statement whatsoever. Um, I do think the folks in Washington are, you know, maybe clearing their desks. They're getting ready for the holidays. You know, maybe that's why some of the, the arrests are picking up. Maybe that's why the, the committee activities have been so fast and furious. Uh, they are, you know, there is a time deadline for once. And so, um, you know, they're, they're, I think more things are going to be happening publicly uh, very soon 
in the January 6th investigation. I will thank you so much for listening and um, happy holidays and enjoy your weekend.